Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. When you boil it down, being a dean is perhaps one of the most ultimate challenges in leading a human organization and driving change. Our guest today, Joe White, brings a treasure chest full of leadership advice to our podcast, where he will share his personal experiences on what he calls the privilege of leadership. Joe has had a circuitous academic leadership journey. After earning his PhD at Michigan, now known as the Ross School of Business, Joe joined the business school's faculty in 1975 as an assistant professor. Six years later, though, he gave up tenure to join industry to become an executive at the manufacturing firm Cummins, located in downstate Indiana. In 1987, he returned to the Michigan faculty and was appointed dean four years later, a role he served in from 1990 to 2001. During this time, Joe overhauled the school's MBA and executive education operations. He also oversaw explosive growth in the school's philanthropic output. Without any doubt, Joe White fundamentally understands academic innovation. So many of the topics which are table stakes today in our business schools, such as advancing the role of women in business, elevating community service and action learning, were all projects Joe worked on nearly 30 years ago. Over time, Joe would go on to become interim president at Michigan and serve for five years as president of the University of Illinois. In this session, Joe shares with us a rich list of helpful leadership tips and admonitions, several of which are mentioned in his book, The Nature of Leadership, Reptiles, Mammals, and the Challenge of Becoming a Great Leader. We hope you enjoy this episode. Joe White, it's a pleasure to have you join us on our podcast today. You and I have known each other for years and years and years. And I was, as, as I was coming to school this morning, I was reminded of our common mentor in uh, Gil Whitaker, who preceded you at, at Michigan and, of course, who I worked for for years. And that brought flooded memories to me of just the importance of mentors in our, in our life and, and how we can grow as, as leaders. And the topic I'd like you to dig into a little bit, Joe, is how do we, how do we think about the humanity and the human elements of being in a dean and what can we share what can you share about your experiences and effectively leading people in in both large and small and private and public environments well it's a big topic uh it's a really important topic david for every dean and the the simple way i would uh put it is this i, I was on the board once of a company and the CEO said to me, every day I remind myself that we are both a business and a human community, and I'm the leader of both. And I think deans need to embrace that reality that they are the head of an academic organization, but they are also the leader of a human community. I think that faculties are really unique among human communities and work organizations because, you know, the turnover is relatively low, uh, particularly among the tenured faculty. So a faculty after a while really becomes almost like a family. 
And the, the dean is the head of that family. If I could only say one thing about it, David, about leading that human community, it is the importance of a dean being in the moment with regard to what's happening in that human community. I remember when uh, we had a young faculty member die suddenly, and it was a, a huge shock. And within a day, I organized a get-together for the entire community in our auditorium where we just shared memories of him. I remember getting to work one morning when uh, I learned that three of our students were in an apartment building where there was a fire the night before. So I quickly got in touch with them, learned they had lost everything. And we immediately raised money from the community to help them out. You know, every day there's something going on on the human side of the organization. And the dean really, really needs to be in touch with those things, be responsive to them, lead the community's response to them. So again, Deans are leaders of the academic organization, and there's budgeting, there's performance reviews, there's tenure reviews, there's hiring, there's strategic planning, but through it all, there's this leadership of the human community that is such an important part of the job, and it's really a privilege to be in that role. So talk with us some on a related note about change and leading change because humanity and change can be um, paradoxical because people are threatened by uh, by change, particularly you know well-established institutions. You've done a lot of innovation. Every place you've been has been a transformation that you've uh, uh, been credited with. Talk some about techniques you've used to make change during these initiatives. In the writing and speaking I've done about leadership, I've always said I keep it very simple. I think there are some foundation requirements in terms of integrity and energy and desire to lead and so on. Then there's the hard side, the analytical side, the business side, and then there's the soft side, the human side. But ultimately, the job of every leader is to lead change. That may be change that is disrupting others to gain competitive advantage or maybe adaptive change because of what's going on with your competitors and in the environment. But everything else in leadership is just table stakes, basic requirements, hard side, soft side. You have to have that to have the opportunity to lead change. And I don't need to tell any dean listening to this that you have to innovate. You have to innovate in your programs and in program delivery and in so many areas in which the, the school or college operates. So, yes, I have done a lot of change at the Ross School and then at the University of Illinois. It's probably because uh, I, I gave up tenure, left the University of Michigan, went to Cummins, the diesel engine and power systems company for seven years and then came back before I became dean. And a spell in industry, in those days, prices were coming down 20 to 30% because of international competition, 
Japanese in the 80s were setting new quality standards. And so I just saw in a, in a company that survival depended on innovation. When I got back to the University of Michigan and set high aspirations for how we would perform, the thing that occurred to me is that I was never going to be as rich as my richest competitors like Harvard and Wharton and Stanford and even Kellogg. But I did feel I could out-innovate them because, again, interestingly, wealth tends to squelch innovation. Wealth creates a buffer so that you're, you don't have to innovate. I did my MBA at the Harvard Business School 20 years after we created the MAP program, Multidisciplinary Action Projects, and got students out into organizations so that they could get great professional development, not just a great education. I went to a reunion at Harvard 20 years after we developed the MAP and implemented the MAP program. And the dean was proud to announce that once again, Harvard was leading the world by getting students into organizations with practical experience. So they wouldn't just be smart and well-educated, they'd be effective. You know, I didn't have that luxury. When you have an endowment their size, you can take 20 years to, to innovate. Now onto your question about the human side of innovation. I think the most important thing, this might be a surprising answer to you, the most important thing is to have a handful of leaders with whom you're working who really, really, really know the human side of the school well. I was incredibly lucky at Michigan to have Paul Danos, who went on to be dean of the Tuck School as senior associate dean. I got a lot of credit for implementing the MAP program because it really was innovative. And initially, a lot of the faculty were really very negative about it. And a lot of students were not very excited. They were like, hey, I came back to school. I like school. I know how to do school. I don't want to do real work anymore. I want to do school work. Paul Danos had the patience and the insight about every member of our faculty and every leader on the staff side to really craft an implementation strategy that got us there. Here's one other insight that Paul and I came up with together. It's the word pilot. You guys know, all deans know that in fundraising, the most important word is consider. Because if you if you ask somebody, you know, will you do a $10 million gift? They're probably saying no. But if you say, would you consider a $10 million gift? You know, most people say, well, actually privately, you know, there's sort of, uh, you know, they feel good about the fact you think they might do it. The equally important word on the human side of innovation is pilot. We piloted so much stuff where we never had any intention of undoing it. But generally, people won't go to the barricades to oppose pilots. Because, you know, reasonable people say, look, we'll try it. We'll try it on a small scale. We'll see how it goes. We'll fine tune. We'll make adjustments. If we really lay an egg, we'll just abandon it. So actually, on the road to map, were a ton of pilots. And Paul was really good at that. 
Here's another point about the human side of innovation in our business schools. Not everybody has to come along. I, I always have felt that there are a variety of kinds of faculty members. And it's really important for deans to understand what's the comparative advantage of each faculty member, where can he or she most contribute? You know, I wasn't gonna waste a huge amount of time getting a, a true research star who did a great job teaching doctoral seminars and maybe an advanced MBA program. I wasn't gonna spend a ton of time or political capital trying to convince that faculty member to teach a section of MAP. He or she probably wouldn't be very good at it anyway. On the other hand, as, as you guys know, let's be blunt, most faculty are not research stars. Such people are really relatively few. Most people do journeyman, journeywoman research, which advances their careers, makes small incremental contributions to their fields. But they really need to be good utility infielders. They need to be good at research, at teaching, at service. Those are the people who need to come along with MAP. And maybe the in that regard, the final thing I'll say is that when I came back from Cummins to be dean at Michigan, I was startled to see how many cases of what I now recognize as arrested development there were on the faculty. I, want to, I really want to be very blunt with this. My, job, my first job at Cummins was as vice president of management development. And I saw the intensive efforts that an industrial organization put into developing, i.e. making more effective supervisors, managers, directors, executive directors, officers. And when I came back to the business school in Michigan, I looked at faculty through new eyes. And what I saw was that because of the narrowness of their development experience, many faculty members, they, if you were honest about it, they, they did not become as good as they could be professionally because not enough challenges were thrown their way. There weren't enough new circumstances that they had to learn how to navigate like you do in industry. And I, I was very honest with faculty members about this. I said to them, look, you're in a professional school. You're not in the liberal arts or sciences. You're not in you know, one of the underlying disciplines. In a professional school, we sit right at the crossroads the incredibly crazy intersection between disciplinary work and the world of practice. And we are not preparing most students to do what we do. We're preparing them to be effective in the world of practice. And I said, I can guarantee you that after a few years of overseeing MAP projects with students in them, you are gonna be a better professional school faculty member you will have new insights about research questions. You will have actual live examples from your own experience to bring alive your classroom lectures and discussions, because this is gonna be a professional development experience for you on the practice side of this professional school. And I will tell you, 
I saw it happen at Michigan. I have faculty friends there who I knew then and I know now, and I saw the growth of them. They were no longer cases of arrested development, or they never became cases of arrested development because it was a broadening and deepening experience. So I think you have to help people understand what's in it for them. And what was in it with MAP, this big innovation, what was in it for them was becoming a more effective professional school faculty member. Great, uh, great story, Joe. I just, just a comment, Joe, I want to circle back to this word pilot. I've heard you give that advice on several occasions, and I, I used it extensively in my readership roles. And I think, I think you're right. It's hard to say there's no way on in hell we're going to do this pilot. Nobody goes that path. And so you get earlier buy-in. But the other neat thing about using that word pilot is it addresses the issue of what about failure? And it empowers people to say, and my response was, this is a pilot for heaven's sakes. If it doesn't work, we're going to shut it down because we are, as you know, Joe, our our faculty uh, have a remarkable feel of fear of failure. Yeah, we're all we're all we're all A students. You know? Yeah, and 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 we are skeptics to the hilt. I can remember one time I was developing a major program here. It's turned out to be huge, and and I had a. A, a, a faculty member of easily 25 years of experience come up and just ream out, ream me out. Oh my gosh, you know, uh, this is going to be a flop. And I said, well, if it is, we're just shut the damn thing down and we're going to move on to the next thing. And and that really enabled a lot of people to say, okay, we, we can take risks. One other point, David, a really good thing about Pilot is that it's authentic. It's not bullshit. It really is, you know, you really mean it because if you're doing true innovation, you don't know how it's going to go. So you actually do need to start small scale and you really do need. So it's not like you're flim flamming people. You're telling them the truth. We're going to try this thing out. In your book, you really bring out the, the, the importance that deans really must have and also develop around emotional awareness that by being emotionally aware, it really enables them to meet people where they're at. And I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for us uh, and, and help us all grow. I think of all the things that deans do, the role that they're most unprepared for is having really difficult and really uncomfortable conversations with people. You think as a faculty member, you, you're having an uncomfortable conversation when a student's not happy with a grade. Believe me, that is the minor leagues when it comes to uncomfortable conversations. You have to tell people that they're being turned down for tenure. You have to explain to people wh why they got a zero increase. You have to <laughs> explain to, to people why a project that they're passionate about is not going to be funded or why the funding's going to end. You have to tell people that they're just not cutting it, whether it's in the classroom or in research, or you have to tell them that in terms of their citizenship role, they're being a jerk and that's not okay. It's not on. I remember one time 
I was in my office and I heard a faculty member just reaming out a member of the office staff because the faculty member that morning hadn't been able to find a parking place and therefore was late for class. And I remember walking out and just steering the person into my office and closing the door and saying the following, number one, you are never to speak in an abusive way to anybody in this community and especially to staff members. Number two, when I got here at 7.30 this morning, there were a ton of parking spaces. So, you know, if you want a parking space, get here earlier. And number three, if you're going to be a high-maintenance colleague, you better be on the path to winning a Nobel Prize because otherwise you're not worth it, okay? That's what I, you know, that's a, a minor example of a difficult conversation. And the main thing I would say about difficult conversations is this. You cannot be afraid of them. You have to fully engage them. And you have to rehearse them whenever possible. Let me just comment. A lot of us are conflict averse. One of the great benefits I got of leaving Michigan and going to Cummins was that three months after I was hired, my boss took me into his office and he said, I've noticed in meetings you're really uncomfortable with conflict. You're always trying to smooth things over. And you have to understand the workplace in large part when it comes to management and leadership is about conflict. Sometimes you have to create the conflict. You always have to navigate the conflict. He said, you're either going to get better at this or this isn't going to work out. It was honestly wonderful feedback. And the result was I went from being really uncomfortable with conflict to being totally comfortable with conflict and, and usually feeling like when I was in it, it was a reminder, oh, yeah, this isn't a social club. This is a work organization. And conflict is just, you know, it goes with territory. So you have to expect it, you have to embrace it and realize it's an important part of the role. The second thing is you, you really have to, you really have to engage the conflict. The first time I ever fired somebody was at Cummins. I brought the person into my office. I delivered the news in a, a, a good professional manner. I'd prepared carefully. My poor wife has been fired so many times in our marriage because I always rehearse with her day before, night before. Anyway, this person began to cry. And I made one of the worst mistakes in my career. And I mean it. I, I, I made a lot of mistakes. And I put this way up high. I was so uncomfortable with the tears that I walked out and left the person in my conference room crying. Many, many, many times after that, both at Cummins and at Michigan and at Illinois, the person to whom I delivered bad news cried. I never left the room again. I stayed right there with that person. Sometimes in silence for 10 minutes. No problem. Just go over and get the box of Kleenex and offer it. But you hang in there. Okay. You can't let, you cannot be guided by your own discomfort. 
you have to remember your job as a leader in those situations. And then the final point I've already touched on, which is you don't always have the opportunity to rehearse difficult conversations, but you often do. And I am serious when I tell you, I have never had a difficult conversation I knew I was going to have without having with my wife, Mary, first. Rehearsed, got comfortable with what I was going to say, got her feedback. Because the first time shouldn't be the real time, should not. A quick story about that and why rehearsing is so important. This is a true story, an tr unbelievable but true story. When I was at Cummins, we had to, there was a, the, a huge downturn in business. Company survival was at stake. We had to reduce our workforce by thousands of people. And so, you know, a lot of people were having a lot of hard conversations. I headed HR. Word came back to me one day that a manager had called an employee into his office to let him know that he was going to be separated. The employee was going to be let go, separated, fired. By the time the employee left, he thought that he had received a positive performance review and didn't know that he was being separated. And you will say, how could that happen? Which is what I said. So we dug into it. And the reason it happened was because a manager was so uncomfortable in having a difficult conversation that, went, that it went like this. Hey, Joe, thanks for coming in. You've been with us so many years. You've really done such a great job for us. You know, we're really grateful to you for, for you know, for all you've contributed to Cummins over the years. Uh, really, really grateful. Thanks so much. And, you know, we are going through hard times and, you know, there's going to be change. It just isn't going to work out. So, Joe, thanks a lot. That's what can happen when you have not rehearsed your difficult conversation. So those are my points. Joe, we promised you at the beginning of this conversation that we were going to have, we could choose many different topics. A new topic and one that, you know, you really bring some expertise is uh, boards that excel. And, you know, your counterparts, the deans who are listening, they all have uh, advisory boards. Advisory boards are typically non-fiduciary. Uh, you know, we know that you were able to do incredible things with resources at Michigan. Uh, your endowment, I think, as we look, was 10 times bigger over the course of your tenure. I would imagine that has something to do with the uh, advisory boards. But talk with us some about the development of uh, advisory boards and the deployment of them. If I can only say one thing about advisory boards, it is that often your most difficult advisory board members who are usually your harshest critics are your best friends. We all love to get attaboys. <laughs> you know, we really love it. And generally because the advisory board members are doing it out of love of the institution and because they have confidence in you, the advisory board experience is usually pretty positive because, you know, it's one of those places, you, let's just say you get more attaboys from your advisory boards than you do from the faculty. 
Okay, I'll leave it at that. So we look forward to it. But when I look back on my advisory boards, I can identify the people who were really honestly a thorn in my side, not always in an unpleasant way, but just like they were restlessly dissatisfied. And I'll give you a, an example. Tom Siebel, the founder of Siebel Systems, the biggest donor in the modern era to the University of Illinois, I believe. Tom is a really brilliant guy, a really brilliant entrepreneur. And I raised $100 million from Tom Siebel in a phone call. We, had, we were launching a campaign and our schedules didn't match. So in a phone call, I asked him if, if in the uh, launch event, if he and his wife, Stacy would uh, commit to a $100 million gift because I knew we needed to raise everybody's sights and aspirations and all that. Tom agreed. So yes, Tom was a really great supporter. But I got to tell you, he was never satisfied. He was always restless. He was always in the network with senior people at Stanford and Princeton and here and there and everywhere and oh and the you know big time medical centers and those and, and those were his comparison points and his standards and he usually found us wanting and he was usually right. So I guess the implication of what I'm saying is in addition to appointing the the warm supportive board members Kind of raise your own aspirations to some super high achievers who are, you know, who are kind of relentless. Put them on the board and understand what you're going to get is constant prodding and very few attaboys. And it's fine. We all need it. We all benefit from it. You know, there, there's a lot of things to say about advisory boards. That would be my most important piece of advice. Your toughest members are your biggest friends, ultimately, even when it doesn't always feel like it. Joe, we could we could go on for much longer, but I, I want to ask one closing question of you that I've, I've actually heard you share your views on this. Uh, but I was wondering if you could succinctly speak to our listeners about the views you have on leadership, specifically distinguishing the notion of management from the notion of leadership. What's Joe's ver view of what that means? Yeah, I mean, management is, it, it, to me, management's very, it's not easy, but it's very simple. Management is making sure the trains run on time and that they run safely. And there's a lot to it, but that's what management about. Leadership is about aspirations, setting goals, visions, inspiring, motivating, recruiting great people. You know, I, I was often asked, particularly when things were going well in Michigan, I was often asked, so what, what can you tell us about leadership? And I'd always say, look, and this is, I, I, this is a good thing to end on because I really envy the deans who are listening, because being dean at Michigan was the best job I ever have had. 
I did it for 10 years. I loved it. We accomplished a lot. I felt close to the, to, to the reasons I went into academic life, which was education and students and research and so on. So anyway, if I could, if I could just say one thing about leading effectively, it just comes down to three points. Number one, set high aspirations, really high aspirations. As they say, stretch, but possibly achievable with tremendous effort and some good luck. Number two, recruit great people to important roles. Never settle when it comes to the quality of people in key roles. And number three, bring every single day to the workplace your personal energy. Workplaces run on the energy of leaders because it's infectious. One of my, one of my favorite uh, movies, which you guys have probably seen, but it's pretty old now, but it was, it was about Bob Fosse, the great choreographer called All That Jazz. And, you know, Bob Fosse was a brilliant choreographer, but he also lived kind of a debauched, you know, artsy New York life. And so he was up till three and four a lot of mornings, but then he was up at seven and it would every multiple times the movie would show Bob Fosse looking in the mirror at seven in the morning, of course, looking like hell after being up till 3 a.m. But every time he would look and he'd just say, showtime. Every day is showtime for a dean. You got to bring that energy just like Bossy. What a great, great note to end on. Thank you for sharing these pearls of wisdom. Wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Really, really a privilege to talk with you and my best to all the deans. Ken, what a re remarkable conversation uh, we just had. What were some of your key takeaways with, with what Joe's message was? Oh, it was just really a great conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes. It's one that we all will remember. You know, it's interesting. He closed with that the dean uh, job was uh, the, the best job he ever had, which I thought was very inspiring. And, and the fact that he then was able to go in very specifically to what about it was so great. You know, the, the idea of being close to students, close to research, sort of close to that action. But then also the advice that you set high aspirations, you know, you recruit uh, great people in key roles and that you bring your personal best energy every day it was wonderful advice. I mean, it was a distillation of, of a career. It sure was. I have the privilege of, of knowing Joe for over 20 years. Uh, and so uh, on and off again, I get to hear little nuggets. And I do encourage our listeners uh, to get Joe's book on the nature of leadership. It's a quick airplane read. But uh, in that book, he really brings out this notion of trying to meet people where they're at, whether it's a tough skin or a soft skin, and deal with motivating folks. This notion of, and I wanted to get in, and I'm glad we could squeeze it in at the end, this notion about managing organizations versus leading organizations. I think we as leaders really need to understand where we are in that continuum. Uh, some of us actually are more gifted at managing. 
Yeah, well, others of us were. So when I think about management and managing organizations, I think tons and tons of details, uh, sequences and deadlines and all those steps. And that is that is without a doubt truly a gift. But leading an organization is not so much laying the track, but figuring out where the where to take the track, where to where to where to direct things. That's a different skill set. And I think those of us who are in these roles, we ought to think clearly about where our strength is. The ideal leader, of course, the ideal dean, of course, would have a 50-50 balance there, but many of us don't. And I think if I was asked Joe one more question, it would have been, you know, how do we how do we diagnose where our deficiencies are and then tools or techniques to uh, to cover those those patches. Uh, so for me, I knew, uh, you know, just speaking, I'm not a detailed guy. I've done it. I I don't excel at it. I hire that part. Uh, I, I find people that can do those details because your organization, you know, if you can't make the gears grind appropriately, your organization slows down and eventually stops. So all of these issues are are quite helpful. And uh, and again, Joe is uh, what what pearls of wisdom we were able to get at today. Yeah, I mean, he didn't use the terms self-awareness or authenticity, but those were both sort of at the top of my mind as he talked, because that that makes one very effective. He can also tell a pretty good story. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, bringing your A game every single day and, to, and, and as best you can to every single conversation. You know, you've been in the room for eight hours. This is the 20th conversation you've had for the person on the other side this is probably the most important conversation they're going to have that day and for you it's just one more conversation you need to bring your a-game to that conversation great 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 advice thank you for listening to this episode of dean's council this show is supported in part by corn ferry leaders in executive search Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.